0: everyone to our weekly Genetic Engineering and Society Seminar, Harvard uh, Colloquium. Uh, Jen Valtziger and I will facilitate this seminar, and we're very excited about this week's uh, speaker. So, well, on oct- October 20th, we're going to have our second professional development workshop. It's going to be held at the College of Veterinary uh, Sciences. The campus, Yeah, uh, October 20th, and it's about a expanding your networks, and we'll have uh, three speakers and some activities, and it's on a Friday from 9.30 to 11.30, so it's the second one that we'll be uh, co-hosting with the Genetics and Genomics Academy, um, as well as the Gova Global One Health Academy as well. So, uh, at five, these fellows are invited to attend, and we really would like you to be able to not only get something out of the presentation and activity, but also to start meeting some of these other uh, cohorts and fellows and potential collaboration.
1: And there's food.
0: And there's food. Thank you, Martha. Is there anything else I should say about that? No. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, that's October 20th. We'll do a save the date. And Fred? I just
2: think it would be good for you to
3: explain a little bit more about the external evaluators and the people.
0: Okay. And an update, if you haven't received an email yet by the AgBioFuse external up, uh, external evaluator, uh, every year he does evaluation of our NSF NRT uh, program. Uh, this is part of our, that was written into the grant. And so David Meyer will, or has already emailed students and affiliated faculty about Conducting some focus groups um, October. He's, he, he's aiming for the week of October 9th. So um, there'll be focus groups, and he will also be sending a link for some anonymous uh, surveys as well.
2: Hello,
0: everyone. Welcome to the uh, Dr. Donovan is a senior research scientist at the BSCS, Science Learning whose mission is to transform science, teaching and learning through research-driven innovation. He has a Bachelor's in Art in uh, Biology from Colorado College and a Master's in Art in Teaching from USF, as well as a Master's of Science in Biology and a PhD in Science Education from Stanford. His research focus explores how genetics education interacts with social cognitive biases to influence how students make sense of complex biological and social, social phenomena. His project's inform curriculum development and teacher education and his breakthrough frameworks have actually been reported in media outlets around the book. Uh, currently, he is a principal investigator on multiple NSF-funded projects using experimental, quasi-experimental, and qualitative research methods to identify the cognitive, social, and educational factors that link the learning of human genetics to reductions in racism, Sexism and deterministic worldviews that limit human schedule. Uh, we look forward to learning more from him today. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Donovan.
4: Um, so thank you for inviting me out to talk about my work. and I know some of you may have been around yesterday when I was talking about my research on uh, genetics education and race. Today, I'm gonna focus on gender instead In some more recent work that is, uh, some of it is older, some of it is um, in press um, coming out soon but this is the central question that I wanted to pose for the conversation Fred told me that, you know, these colloquiums are mostly about discussing ideas and so I'm gonna give about a 20 minute talk on some of this research. And this is the question I wanna pose and I'm gonna propose a hypothesis at the end um, about this question. So the talk is about gender essentialism. Uh, gender essentialism is a social cognitive bias. It's early developing across cultures around the world. Um, it's you know probably best captured by those of you who spent some time in the 1990s of the book, uh, what is it, uh, Men Are From Mars and Women Are From Venus. That kind of summarizes gender essentialism in popular culture. And so we're gonna look at that Construct of gender essentialism and gender essentialism ask the question, like, uh, what kind of impact, if any, does biology education have on its development? So, I'm going to make the case to you that biology education potentially does influence its development. So, before I get going, I want to um, give a shout out to the folks in my research lab uh, Molly, Dennis, the base, Monica, and some of the research that I'm presenting today. I've also done with collaborators at NYU, so honor recipient, professor of. Uh, developmental psychology, and Catherine Ragland from UT Austin, he's a sociology of education professor. And Sophie Arnold um, is Andre's graduate student. So they've all contributed to this work in some way or another. But to cut to the chase, the big thing that we've cared about um, in at least my field of science education for the last 30 years is how gender stereotypes about STEM ability develop because um, these stereotypes become uh, limiting factors, barriers, boundaries, hurdles that women have to get over to achieve parity in representation in STEM fields. Um, my talk's going to be about like cisgendered men and women. I'm not addressing transgender identity today. Um, I'll be touching on intersex a little bit, but it's really gender stereotypes about cisgendered men and women. How do they develop? And that's basically the stereotype that. I'm sure a lot of people have heard uttered in one way or another, especially if they've risen up through the STEM pipeline, is that men, or if they're younger, boys are better at STEM than women because they're innately more intelligent. Um, Larry Summers, when he was president of Harvard, uh, during the Obama administration, I believe, got into trouble for basically talking about this idea publicly. And... The reason why that that idea is problematic is um, one, it it emerges early during human development in the United States. So studies by my colleague, Andre, have shown that it emerges as early as six years old in US children. And as soon as kids develop the idea, it starts to shape their interests and motivations to pursue science, it's been shown. If we look later on in the STEM pipeline, at the PhD pipeline in particular, what we find is women earn more phds in fields where fewer postdocs professors and graduate students believe that science ability is something that is inherited that you're born with you either have it or you don't in fields where fewer people believe that more women earn phds in stem fields and non-stem fields as well so this idea that there is some kind of innate genetic basis To the abilities of men and women has been shown and been used to rationalize disparities in STEM fields for a long time in society writ large, right? Underlying that assumption is that there are gender differences in abilities and interests and the smartness of groups, right? That's like at a broad cultural level, kind of the folk ideas that people have. And there's they're structured in a certain way. And and in a very extreme way, people might think that. That, that males and females are categorically different groups, especially in terms of their ability, interests and intelligence. Um, all men are kind of the same. All women are kind of the same as the underlying idea. And if you boil it down even deeper, then those differences are gonna reduce down to differences in their brains. And then that's determined by their sex chromosomes. That's a really strong genetic essentialist view of gender differences. That often is underlying, like really strong agreement with gender stereotypes about STEM ability. Um, but if we look at the biology, especially over the last 20 years, a lot of studies have started to speak to these questions. So, this was a study on um, gene expression in men and women, especially uh, genes that are related to brain development. And um, what they've shown is that, you know, if you look at the same loci in, in men and women, like genes have similar effects on brain development in both groups. So, if the effect is positive, it's of a similar magnitude in both groups. It's not perfect. All the observations are not on the line, right? But that's a pretty strong correlation. Same thing is true if it's a protective effect. If there's a negative effect, is some kind of locus on a brain development trait, um, the effect tends to be the same for men and women. And in fact, people like um, even behavioral geneticists have, have come to acknowledge that there really is no strong evidence whatsoever for, say, uh, genetically cause differences on math test scores. So even someone like Robert Plowman at King's College, who does a lot of GWAS work on complex behavioral traits has even said stuff like that. So the emerging scientific consensus is that like there isn't a very good, <coughs> excuse me, genetic etiology for this kind of uh, disparity that we see in society. So then you might say, well, what about brain variation, right? So if we look at human brains, and Joel uh, did a study a few years ago, it was published in PNAS, and they took regions of the brain that show large volume differences across sex groups. And then they asked the question, are they internally coherent? If you look at like, say, a set of four different brain regions where uh, in men it tends to be bigger or smaller on average than in women, then um, are those kinds of brain features correlated together in the brains of men? And does that structure look differently in women and what they found is that um, there are quote unquote more masculine, and I'm using scare quotes there, brain features that you know, might be found more often in the brains of men, but they're also found those same features at the same size in female brains. Um, the same thing is true on the opposite end of the spectrum that uh, even like quote unquote more feminine phenotypes in the brain are found in male brains. And that there are a third of human brains that you cannot differentiate based on the pattern of uh phenotypes and these brain features that they looked at. They've also done it with like personality features and stuff like that, and still found a spectrum with each sex group having quote unquote the features, the gendered features of another group, right? So, like our women from Venus and men from Mars in terms of their brains, like there's average differences, but those differences do not conform to a gender-essentialist view of things. And then finally, if you look at math and science test scores, what we find is that in some countries around the world, uh, females score higher than males on average on math tests and on science tests. In other countries, it's the opposite effect. And on average, meta-analytically, there actually is no gender disparity in science and math test scores. Um, So that calls into the question that there's even differences in STEM ability, right? Um, And actually, recent reviews of research um, basically are now supporting the idea that there isn't really a great body of evidence to claim that gender disparities in STEM degree attainment boil down to sex differences in chromosomes, right? And instead, the emerging consensus, and you can read it right here, this paper, if you want to, is that, you know, things like gendering processes, the beliefs that are prevalent in the STEM pipeline, the social practices of the STEM pipeline in particular, because a lot of these things are occurring at the graduate level and beyond in that part of the pipeline, are what are producing gender disparities in STEM degree attainment, okay? So, why do people believe that? I mean, it's a pretty common belief. You still hear it. That kind of argument that men have more science ability than women because of genetics is something that is still out there in society. Why do people think that? That's basically the question. Well, one reason is because people conflate sex and gender, right? So we have a bunch of biologists, in the room. we all know that sexual reproduction generates genetic diversity within a species. Uh, and so, you know, for a lot of the things sure that you study, uh, biological sex is a great way to explain certain biological phenomena, right? Um, but we also know from, you know, a hundred years of cultural anthropological research that gender is socially constructed. Um, it's something that you acquire through your culture. Your beliefs, attitudes, expected ways of behaving is something that everyone inherits. And in different cultures, there are kind of different patterns and ideas that are inherited culturally, right? So, um, we basically act in ways that are constrained by, the the agency that we have based on our sex, which is prescribed by how people in our society view us. right? That is how gender is constructed. Um, The problem is, is of course, we inherit uh, our culture along with our genomes and our sex chromosomes in particular, allosomes are inherited along with all the expectations that come along with them in our society. And it's, of course, like I was talking about yesterday, A very difficult thing to disentangle the effects of genomes from the effects of culture because no one is taking children and randomizing them into different environments and running common garden experiments, right? So we can never get down to a genetic effect. So there's not really a great reason to conflate sex and gender because gender is a socially constructed phenomenon. Therefore, gender disparities are best explained by social causes. Right. But people nevertheless do it. And that's possibly be because of an early emerging cognitive bias that humans have actually around the world. And that's gender essentialism. So uh, everywhere we've gone looking for it, this is not just a Western, educated, industrialized, rich democracy phenomenon, a weird phenomenon. Even in quote unquote non-weird societies, we still know that gender essentialism emerges early across cultures between the ages of three to five years old. If we think cognitively is built on a bunch of different, um, oh, I'm actually one slide ahead of myself. It is the belief that men and women have a different underlying essence that determines their behaviors and their abilities, their predispositions. Um, it makes all men the same, all women the same, categorically different from one another. And, and therefore, it's a great way of for for setting up gender categories as um, the causal constituents of gender phenomena in the world. So if you're like in a science classroom and you see that, like, say there's more boys in the physics class than girls, then like the shotgun approach of your brain is to say, well, this pattern must be due to the fact that there's something about boyness and girlness that is driving that phenomena. That's how cognitive scientists kind of explain this tendency toward gender essentialism. Now we basically, these categories are such strong organizing categories for how we view the world. They they shape and condition us to just view disparities between genders as boiling down to something innate. And there's a cognitive bias towards that. And that bias influences gender stereotypes about STEM ability, um, it's causally implicated in its development, and uh, it also tends to lead people to rationalize disparities between genders using genes. And that develops early across cultures, this tendency, between the ages of three to five. It's built on a lot of other cognitive biases that cognitive scientists have studied. And critically, we also know that it's not just some like evolutionary psychology phenomenon. Books matter, language matters. So when we use language like, uh, boys uh, like blue, girls wear pink, right? We're, setting, we're doing so much with that, obviously, right? One, we're implying all boys are the same. All boys are uniform. They like blue. Same thing with girls. They like different colors, so they're categorically different. So we're setting out that assumption, right? That they're discrete. People within their group are highly uniform. Um, not only that, those kinds of generic noun phrases like lions roar, they are a driver of essentialist thinking. So studies have found... Um, that when parents are reading storybooks with their children and they use a lot of generic noun phrases like that, like lions roar, um, birds squawk. I mean, birds like squawk, lions roar, but at different frequencies tones and stuff like that, right? It tends to lead people to view the category members as highly homogenous. And when when parents utter that kind of language around their children, their children develop more essentialist views of categories, including novel categories that they've never even thought about before the language in the books does that, and it's a kind of positive feedback So then if that's the case, if gender essentialism is perpetuated through books and language, well, that kind of makes sense because we have a lot of debate about books and language and how race and gender and things like that should be discussed. So then the question is, well, what about biology textbooks, right? Because biology textbooks include, we already know from studies, there's outdated stereotypical ideas about sex hormones in biology textbooks. They promote heteronormative ideas about gender. Uh, we, they've been criticized over and over again by people like me and my colleagues, um, that they oversimplify inheritance. Um, they ignore complex forms of inheritance, and yet they discuss the genetics of sex differentiation and sex-linked traits, right? That's like a canonical part of biology learned. So uh, uh, several years ago, I conducted a study with some people I work with at BSES. We ran a randomized trial. Um, you're all students in the classroom. I randomly assign you to learn about uh genetics and sex in one of three different ways. Uh, third of you learn about uh, sex determination in dioecious flowering plants because it is somewhat analogous to the sex determination system humans, not the same, um, but it provides a nice control in that sense because it's about plants instead of humans. Third of you learn just the canonical stuff that I'm sure everyone has learned here, and probably in At your undergrad, at least at your uh, high school level, it hasn't been very different. It's been pretty isomorphic. The same exact stuff about human sex determination, the XY chromosome system. Oh, and then a third of you uh, learn basically the difference between sex and gender and why social factors are a better explanation for gender disparities instead of genes. Okay, so those are our three conditions. We measure the kids pre and post. These are... uh, Eighth and tenth graders in San Francisco public schools, um, and so what do we find? Well, at baseline on the pretest, we we've measured kids' beliefs about uh, essentialism based in like brains, so neurological essentialism and genetic essentialism um, about gender categories. These are validated psychological instruments with nice measurement properties. We can talk about it. Florian, uh, this is z-score, so uh, you know. It's not really telling you the level of essentialism, but um, at baseline, all kids in all three conditions are baseline equivalent. Then after they learn and read about uh, one of these three different phenomena, um, what we see is that through this, the kids in the human sex condition and the plant sex condition increase in their gender essentialist beliefs. They're actually more likely to attribute STEM disparities between gender groups to genes even in the plant sex condition and the plant and the human sex conditions are not significantly different in their growth so those slopes are the same and the marginal effects are not significantly different at the end but then you can see obviously that the refutational condition which challenges the same same ideas produce belief in gender gender essentialism as well right so what this kind of study suggests or demonstrates is that learning about the genetics of human sex increases gender essentialist views unintentionally. Like there's no information in those textbooks again about the genetic basis of STEM gender disparities, right? Kids are making that inference. Um, Same thing is happening when kids are learning about the genetic, the sex determination of dioecious flowering plants, which is also really interesting. It can be explained, I think, I can't prove it, but. I think part of the explanation might be that kids conflate sex and gender. So when you start talking about sex categories, even in plants, kids they use their prior knowledge to build new knowledge. The concepts that they have are there while they're making sense and reading new materials. And so they're activating all those other concepts about gender that they have when they're learning about sex. And no one's ever helped them to understand the difference between sex and gender, right? So it's potentially priming an effect in their beliefs about human genders, even though they're learning about plants. But that when we we disentangle these two concepts, then we can reduce gender essentialism, right? So these findings are consistent with that. Um, We have more research going on right now, kind of probing this stuff, kicking the tires on these claims. So uh, that experiment basically at least demonstrates proof of concept that the things that kids are learning about in biology textbooks could, could shape their beliefs about gender. So then that raises the question Is well, how are biology textbooks, physical biology textbooks around the country act, actually discussing sex and gender? Um, and we did a study on that. We examined four different ways in which biology textbooks, the genetics chapters of biology textbooks might discuss sex and gender. We, we analyze how textbooks, do they draw a distinction between sex and gender or not? Um, Do they overemphasize similarity of people of the same sex or gender, like promoting the idea that all women are the same, all men are the same? Um, Are they stressing similarities or differences between sex and gender groups? And then how are they explaining variation within and between sex or gender groups? And um, we have six textbooks sampled from California, Texas, Florida, and New York. Um, We have teacher survey data that's nationally representative about who uses these textbooks. So these textbooks are used in two-thirds of inter- introductory high school biology courses around the United States. Um, we unitize all the, ch- the paragraphs in those chapters, this is a quantitative content analysis. And then we coded those paragraphs to see if they the sex or gender terminology and if and how sex and gender was defined and distinguished. Um, And then we looked a little bit further for all the paragraphs that discuss sex and gender terminology. We asked the question, well, how is variation within a group being described? Are individuals being positioned as highly uniform um, or are they differing by type? Like in a Mendelian kind of way, there's tall men and short men, for example, different types. Um, Or are they discussing textbooks, discussing continuous variability within a sex group or a gender group? Uh, How are they describing between-group variation? Are groups positioned as similar or different? And then how is all that being explained? Through internal causal factors, external causal factors, one factor, multiple factors. Um, You know, just to say like, if essentialism is being like communicated to kids in a really strong way, then you would expect textbooks to discuss uniformity within groups. A lot of differences between groups not really stressing similarities at all whatsoever overlaps um, mostly internal and then single versus mul- multiple is kind of up in the air because there's multiple genes on a chromosome so if you're in here if you're inheriting a sex chromosome it could come in one of two different ways does that make sense so um interrelated reliability uh or sorry, Krippendorf's alpha was was pretty good across all code. So we were pretty reliable in our coding across the team. We have a nasty data structure because we have six textbooks. We have a bunch of chapters within them. Sections are within those, subsections are within those. And we have our paragraphs, which is where we're coding. Um, Here are the sample sizes for each one. I think an interesting thing to point out, however, is that (laughs) at least at this level, if you look at the code variability and you partition it, There's not much variation across chapters within textbooks, within the same textbook, or across textbooks at all. Um, That textbooks are fairly isomorphic in how they, they are discussing the genetics of sex differentiation. All right. And that we'll come back to that at the end, because these are very different states, and curriculum adoption is political by nature right? Like what what goes into the curriculum. And so despite all that and the controversy we hear in American society, these textbooks kind of look all the same, I guess is what I'm saying. Uh, What we found is that about a third, a little more than a third of paragraphs within genetics chapters discussed sex or gender. Um, We then calculated our code proportions um, per subsection we have nesting here that we need to deal with in the data and then we adjusted our standard errors at the section level so we're accounting for the hierarchical or nested nature of the data in our analysis and what we found is that none of the paragraph explicitly differentiated between sex and gender Um, and if we looked at variation within a group continuous variation within a group is is described when discussing males or females or men or women. Um, But it's much more common on average uh, for textbooks to describe like types of men or all men are kind of the same, all women are kind of the same. So uniformity differing by type, more frequent across paragraphs within a subsection than continuous variation within a group. When it comes to between group variation, the results are mixed. There's no significant differences here in the in the um, proportion of paragraphs that we coded for the for difference versus similarity. So there's like mixed messages in textbooks about are gender or sex groups similar or different. Um, little that's hopefully some promising a promising result. But um, intersex is never brought up, defined, discussed in textbooks, even though it's a you know a biologically plausible thing to talk about that we should be talking about. It's not discussed. Um, And there's never any, like, discussion of, like, well, are the similarities between the groups, uh, you know, does it outweigh the differences between the groups, stuff like that. None of that kind of conversation is going on with the textbooks either. We put it for that. And then, unsurprisingly, these are genetics textbooks. And what we find is that uh, giving an internal explanation, like internal to the body, primarily genetic, regardless of the trait, we, I'm not presenting results on traits, but we coded for cognitive traits, behavioral traits, all kinds of stuff, that internal explanations were far more common than any factor operating out of the body or any interactions inside and outside of the body. Um, and single and multiple came out of the wash, so equally likely to be discussed. Um, so, you know, in conclusion, to kind of tie this all together, um, you know, if, if, if biology textbooks can increase gender essentialist thinking in high school students and if they communicate that same-sex individuals are uniform right and they communicate that variation within between groups can be explained by internal and genetic factors um and they fail to define between sex define the difference between sex and gender then you gotta wonder is are there places in america where US biology education is unintentionally increasing gender essentialist beliefs in students. And if that's the case, then what should we do about it? And um, I think possibly we should define and differentiate these concepts for students, communicate there are intersex individuals. I mean, look, biological sex in humans is continuous, somewhat continuous in nature, but highly bimodal. right? We all know that as biologists, um, but that, like that, those kinds of conversations were either prohibited from having or it's hard to talk about that kind of stuff right now. Um, I think we could talk about that. We could talk about intersex, help kids understand the many biological pathways that lead to intersex. That's all within our wheelhouse as biologists to discuss and as biology educators. Um, we can explain that there's a lot of continuous variation within groups on almost every biological trait or even social trait. Um, those distributions overlap substantially across sex or gender groups. um, And that, you know, when it comes to gender stereotyped traits, uh, there's not a good case to be made that they boil down to genes. And I think that's well within our ability as genetics educators to do it. So that's that's what I'm leaving with, two questions, I guess, to discuss and debate. Um, which is one, do you think biology education is affecting gender essentialism in the United States? If so, then how? And two, does this seem like a reasonable way to approach the problem? So thank you. I think that's it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Anything going on right now for high school biology educators. I don't know if there's any folks in here who teach high school that
2: scan learn more
0: Okay. Um this. Uh, to bring everyone in uh, online and remind people online that you're welcome to join the discussion. If you would like to ask your question yourself, use the raise your hand
2: function and I'll call on you, or you can just put your question in the chat and I'll read it for you. Um, so question. Um, thank you, that was really interesting. Um, it's really
5: nice to see empirical data support Intuitiveness, because I think we don't see that enough. Um, so your research seems to have like a really clear direct line to potential applicability. And yet there are so many like big structural challenges to that actually being possible. I mean, like at any stage of the pipeline, like we've got you know, testing companies with a stranglehold on curriculum purchasing, like to like maternal leave during PhD or like there's so many different structural challenges to to applying some of these really straightforward um potentially applicable like changes can you this is kind of a meta question but can you speak to that struggle of like you have this really clear data you have really clear ways that we could apply it how do you personally handle that like all those structural roadblocks to actually having it be applied like what life. is your
2: therapy?
4: I a lot. <laughs> I mean, no, it's it's really difficult thing, yeah. you know, like and I've been doing this work for a decade now, and the conversation in in the, in the country has changed so much that I've seen so many more barriers. I flew under the radar for a long time. Easy to get into schools, easy to do things, even though these are controversial issues that people, you know, have a lot to say about and a lot tied up in. And um you know, especially since the pandemic, things have changed dramatically. And so there are roadblocks to doing this research everywhere. It's very hard to do. Um, I don't have, you know, like any educational research, to all about partnerships with certain schools, that's going to limit your, the external validity of your findings and what you can actually say with the data that you produce. Uh, and so we're, we're caught in that trap of, being able to work with schools who support the kind of work that we're doing. And that means that we can't really speak to, so like the findings seem clear cut, but we actually don't know how this is going to work in lots of different places. Stuff like this can backfire all the time. You know, if you go around threatening the identities of kids and people have lots of different identities, not just racial and gender identities, right? You go around threatening people and you teach this stuff in a very confrontational kind of way. Then you should expect people are going to dig their heels in and possibly do exactly the opposite, right? Um, and so we can't really speak to the treatment effect heterogeneity in our studies around the United States to know if it's actually working as intended. And that's why we need to do the research, but we're limited from doing the research. So that makes me drink a lot. <laughs>
2: that right there.
4: Um, you know, uh, partnerships with schools have we, we've we've come by a lot of them. And there are school districts who have uh, really been instrumental in this work over the years, but even those school districts are starting to scale back um, out of concerns. Like a chilling
5: effect concern? Yeah, chilling effect.
4: Yeah. Yeah. Um, Afraid of parents. Mm -hmm. I mean, look, teachers have a really hard job. And, you know, school districts are not interested in educational research right now for a variety of reasons. One, like, Randomized trials have never been popular in schools because you're withholding a benefit, right? Uh, Two, like there's so much stuff that we're doing post pandemic to catch up. I mean, catch up, I'm not quite sure what that really means, but there's been a lot of data on that, right? That's been the emphasis in research in schools right now. And then, yeah, there's been chilling conversations because of political developments around the country. And it's on the left and the right. To be completely honest, I am not just shut down in my research because of stuff that's happening on the right. It's also happening in schools on the left right now. There's just a lot of polarization about issues of identity that makes it very difficult to even get into schools to do this work right now. So it comes from everywhere. And I don't have a good solution. I was hoping you might be able to tell me <laughs> where I should go and do this work so I can achieve sample sizes. I would say not, yeah.
5: not Florida.
4: <laughs> okay, okay, yeah. Uh, does that answer your question?
5: I mean, as best as you can. Yeah, that's a really it was a challenging
4: question.
1: Yeah, Martha, would you like to? Sure. So, Brian, uh, great talk. I really enjoyed it. Um, I just a question I have for you is one of the things I've been thinking about um, <laughs> trying to work on a lesson plan. For is introducing how fish uh, figure out this problem and, and how environmentally induced sex change happens in fish um, to introduce this idea that it's not just the genes, it's the environment. Um, and, you know, unlike sort of how it's originally introduced in the elementary school, it's a little bit different. And it's fish. So people get into it in sea turtles. Um, people kind of can get into that. Uh, at a young age and maybe help move away from this sort of essentialist thinking.
4: Yeah, I think that's Reed and I were actually talking about that in our meeting earlier today. It's Reed, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Uh, And I think that's a
4: really interesting idea, and I don't know of anyone who's really studied it. I've heard it come up multiple times. Um, One of my biology advisors at Stanford was Rodolfo Verzo, who's a uh, tropical ecologist, and he's brought it up to me uh, several times over. As far as I know, no one's really studied that. And I think it would be a really interesting thing to do, especially if we think that kids are transferring across domains here from the plant domain to the human domain. It stands to reason they might be doing that with other animal domains, right? And I
1: I was thinking more in sort of the second grade to fifth grade range, um, maybe early on since we're already talking about... um, You know, gender identity and these things happen at a very early age developmentally with kids, yeah.
4: Yeah, I mean, I think there's a case to be made for it in elementary
2: school. Um, But the challenge would be, how do you
4: discuss sex determination in elementary school? Like, discuss, you know, a gene-environment interaction framework in a developmentally appropriate way. And over, at least if you're running a, like, you can do that. Curriculum-wise and instructionally, I think awesome. It's worth trying out. Uh, But then to get, you know, to do the developmental psychology study and prove what you need to prove and prove the kids understood it and they have the right conceptual understanding and the changes are due to this, not that. That's a like a really difficult study to do. Uh, But it's worth, it's a worthwhile
2: study. And we've kicked it around for a while in our research group. I don't know what would happen which is why it's an interesting study. with you. Can I jump into <laughs> that and maybe expand the scope? Since you do look at
3: like a lot of these complex polygenic or like not even genic traits um, that are like truth of them is much more complicated than is ever taught in a high school course, how
2: can we
3: evaluate or think of systems where we can simplify without simplifying down to like narratives and power structures that are just reinforcing essentialism and the status but like are are there valid ways of talking about polygenic and continuous variation that's still for yeah
4: i think so and i think that's you know that's part of what we do in science right is we construct models and models are not the world itself there are simplified ideas about how the world works they we look for parsimony and variance explained and um you know i think there are ways to get at that to help kids understand this is a model. It's a provisional idea about how the world works it's better than just belief or opinion because we put it to the test over and over and over again in different ways and we can argue about its limitations and its strengths right um <laughs> So I think that's part of the answer, right? Um, and then, in particular, like you know, you raise the question of polygenicity uh, in GWAS. Is there a way to discuss that kind of stuff in the science classroom? Well, we do do that, and we do it in a very simplified way, um, and it's it's kind of too complex to describe right now. But um, with undergraduates, we've done it as well, and we help them understand Manhattan plots and um, what narrow sense heritability is in a more conceptual way, not like in terms of a regression line. Um, so I think there are ways to do it. And, and um, Dahlia, right? Yes. We discussed this a couple of days ago. Like a lot of a lot of the ways that I think are, the way into that is, is through figures, graphs, interpreting data that is represented against certain hypotheses, like having counterfactual ideas about, um, well, if the world, if the world works like this when we look at this data, we sh- the data should look like this. And if the world works like that, then the data it's what we do as scientists. We envision what does would the data have to look like to be consistent or inconsistent with our hypotheses? Then we run into the problem that we have in biology all the time, which is we have multiple models that are consistent that predict the same variability in the data. so then what do we how do we deal with those problems? And so then that has there's a lot of affordances there then in terms of discussing what models are, how biologists are producing knowledge, what are the problems that they deal with? So I think, yes, it is certainly possible to do all that. Um, I think polygenicity would be great to talk about in the science classroom, the the strengths and limitations of GWAS, um, how they're really confined to explaining variation within a single well-defined population with really good understanding of environmental inputs, which we almost never have. How the narrow sense heritabilities change from one study to the next. How effect sizes for certain genes flip from study to study. I think all of those things could be discussed, and we could figure out how to do that in a developmentally appropriate way for high school, for sure. Yeah, thank you. Yeah.
2: When my
0: third uh, grader gets home, she tells me that she looked at the screen all day. And your data, some of it came primarily from textbooks. And as schools move towards more digital tools, I wonder how your findings might be exacerbated or ameliorated. Or have you thought about how changing the material and the medium that students are learning with might impact?
4: Um, I'm sure it does. I haven't explored that yet. Um, just because you know the amount of permutations and Different conditions that you would have to. I'm an experimentalist, let me just say that. (laughs) So I naturally go to, if we're going to do this, let's vary this, 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 and this. And then we run into sample size issues, power issues, essentially. And then we have the problems of recruiting schools and kids. So we haven't looked at any of those questions yet. But I would imagine um, maybe less so between text and not text, but like text, you know that is taught well with good disciplinary literacy strategies versus unsupported reading. So if we're eliciting the right kind of prior knowledge before kids start reading about sex differentiation, like eliciting more anti-essentialist kind of constructionist ideas instead of biologically deterministic ideas before they begin reading. I would imagine that could shape where kids go because you know the, the kind of prior knowledge you elicit before reading is gonna determine What schema is activated? What knowledge is derived from reading the text? Close reading strategies, strategies that are getting kids to summarize information for future recall, discussion and debate around the text. The instruction around the text, I think, could drastically alter even the same text, how it lands with kids. But we haven't looked at those features yet. Um, And then I think, like, you know, to the extent sense making and learning unfolds over long periods of time. Kids do not necessarily have coherent knowledge structures um, because learning is very context specific. You learn different ideas in different places, contextual cues kind of elicit those ideas in your mind and you make judgments based on your goals and motivations about which ideas to use in a certain situation. So to get a real change in essentialist thinking that's like durable and long lasting is probably gonna require a very coherent, long lasting curriculum. And again, probably even with regards to race like way more instruction many more years because gender essentialism varies less within an individual even than racial essentialism does and it develops earlier so
2: yeah no oh, actually, sorry I'm,
0: I'm sorry we've had a question in the chat for a while sure. so lynn asks do you see any gender differences and beliefs of gender essentialism
4: um that is something that we we have a randomized trial going on right now. We're investigating that question. Um, specifically, what are there are there gender by treatment interaction effects in our studies? Oh, we have some preliminary evidence that there is, but it's complicated. It doesn't work out the way you always think it would be. And it has to do with like a lot of social psychology and system justifying motives. Um, you know, sometimes people adopt beliefs counterintuitively. And so I don't want to speak too much on it because we don't have any clear findings, but that's something we're actively investigating. Yeah.
2: Okay. Um, I guess you were talking about this a little bit already, but what came to mind telling you, teaching kids about the complex
3: genetics and such instead So focusing on that, focusing on the idea of like gender meets social and as such, because that's a we from developmental psychology, like very early on, kids would pick up gender cues and such about like, oh, I'm just acting like this boy, or this way, for uh-huh. example. Or, like as a non-binary person i think of like oh this is just weird in general yeah. and just kind of focusing on that first i mean you mentioned that idea of like curriculum like a cohort study like early on you teach them about like reputation and like gender as like everybody always real the same way or something and then later on when they're introduced to, like genetics and such mm-hmm. at a later age it's easier to have, like understand what, what topics of those kind of there you have what like, you said about prior knowledge to work with to Kind
4: of or. Yeah. So, so, uh, I, I'm sorry. What the question is like if we activate kind of different ideas about gender even before yeah. we get to the learning, how is that going to shape trajectories through the learning process? Basically? Yeah, basically. yeah, I would imagine so. <laughs> and, and so that's why I think like these questions about what happens in elementary science education, and then thinking outside of science education as well. Because science teachers, I think like we were discussing this just recently, you know. To what extent should science uh, teach biology teachers tackle questions of gender identity? And you know, you're going to be constrained as a biology teacher. Chances are you're going to have to talk about biology studies that exist out there. I've read a lot of those studies. There are genome-wide association studies on transgender identity and stuff that I would never want to introduce them in a biology classroom, just because they end up promoting, like I think, neuroessentialist ideas. And they're not, they're they're fundamentally like missing the point of gender being a socially constructed identity. And like they're 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 missing on that fundamental premise for me. And and so the challenge then I think is if a teacher were to do that in the classroom, and I think it could work in a really interesting way, intersex is one area in, but but gender identity is is you know related but distinct from that then teachers are going to run into the pressure or the blowback of, well, this isn't biology. Why are you teaching in the biology? And so we haven't worked out all of those challenges yet. Um, but that is something we're actively thinking about, and there's new grant proposal ideas about that. So I don't have any answers about what might happen, but I think it's a good idea. Does that answer your question? I
3: guess it does make a
4: follow up. If you're talking about
3: intersex, mm-hmm. thinking about how you want to that, because I know at least. A little bit about, excuse me, the experiences in like the intersex community, such as that there have been issues of like uh, boundaries about what it means to be intersex, and, right? Stuff, mm-hmm. As well, and thinking about how you teach that as like, um, and you're gonna butt heads probably with academics and such on this, like what counts as being intersex or not.
4: Sure, yeah, I mean, and that's why, like, we have advisory boards that are composed of people from communities through which we would be doing, you know. We have folks who are intersex in our, on our advisory board who advise us on those things. So I wouldn't even know how to tackle that. I know there's like, the Intersex Community of America, I think, has a whole website of all the different mechanisms through which intersex is produced. And that would be our jumping off point, something like that. And then we would talk with community members to think about the curriculum material we developed. We'd probably co-develop them with them. And then we start to think at that point after the fact, Like, what are the psychological targets if we're running a social psychology study on gender views that we want to hit? And how are these materials aligning or not aligning? And then what would our contrast be? Like, what would the business as usual condition be? How would it differ in those same ways? And then that's how we would start to get at mechanisms of like how this curriculum that we've developed does or does not impact certain views. So like, even to answer the question would require years of work to get to that point.
5: Does that make sense? Like, yeah. Can I just pick it really fast? I know I talked already. And there's also really clear policies in districts around gender affirming and inclusive identity pronoun usage or something. Like, could you think is that a simple enough independent variable to, to instead of as like a proxy for some of that longitudinal data? Because like,
4: yeah, socioculturally, like it might yeah. it might be indicative of like a broader difference in classroom culture mm-hmm. or school culture. Um, but then you would want to look again at like, you'd want data then on who these kids are, what are their parents saying? Because there's crossway interactions there between like, how aligned is a student's family beliefs with the school culture, and then there's the curriculum interacting with all that. And so really to, to get a sense of what's going on, it'd be hard to get that data, right? (laughs) Yeah. We actually
2: have
0: another question online. Uh, Marsha Gumperts says, "Did you say that gender essentialism seems more intractable than racial essentialism? And could you discuss
4: this?" Um, I maybe I use the word intractable. I'm not sure. Uh, I think uh, from the standpoint of developmental psychology, and and research has been done, especially over the last twenty years, it's pretty clear that gender essentialism emerges earlier than racial essentialism does in the United States, and you know, yeah. Sometimes Europeans are like, "Oh, we don't, we don't talk about race. We don't have race." So that's not true. But, um, anyways, ethnic essentialism in Europe, which tends to be racialized, right? Um, there's been studies across Europe and the United States. We can look at the same variables, and what we see is that gender essentialism develops way before racial essentialism does, and in the United States. We have limited data on racial essentialism, but it's, um, it, it, it develops differently in different populations. Actually, one study suggests that uh, racial essentialism develops earlier in African-American kids than in white kids. And that at age 10, they're in, they're, they're in parity, basically. Um, so that period of three to 10 years old is where there's a lot of transformation in essentialist thinking. And it has to do with the fact that kids are in school in the United States. And what do we do in schools? We divide kids up by race and gender. And so then you have stuff to explain as a kid. Why is everyone divided by race and gender? All of a sudden, the categories are really salient all the time, Mm -hmm. right? And then you have to come come up, kids come up with explanations. And adolescence is when everyone's like kind of working out the kinks and their explanations for why there are disparities in society, okay? Um, But like, think about. Gender concepts, in particular, they're rooted back to notions of parents and safety in the world. So the the working hypothesis is like people have like much more fundamental categories categories about males and females because of upbringing, like because of having parents essentially. And then all of the things. How how often are there gender roles in your house? There certainly are in my house still. Not not like uh, we've reached parity on who does laundry all the time. Like my wife sometimes does more laundry than my kids watching that all the time, right? So kids are just observing all of these distinctions within homes and within schools. Like a lot of teachers are women, right? Still true today. So all of these things are shaping and reinforcing on a subtle level all the time, our views about the categories. It is a multiply determined multifactorial phenomenon. And I I think that the the developmental literature says there's just like a lot more messages about gender than race. And the messages about race are a ton, but they start potentially a little bit later in a lot of societies. And there's a lot more cross-cultural variation in how race and ethnicity is made sense of how people are grouped and treated. In America, race and gender are both super powerful. We're like splitting hairs here to talk about how powerful one is versus another, but it is true that gender ideas developed much earlier
2: in US children. I don't know if that makes them more intractable,
4: but I mean, under the hypothesis that neurons that fire together wire together, there's probably very myelinated pathways that shape how we view
2: gender. Which is probably why there's such strong reaction mm-hmm. to changing those categories in our society. Yeah. Um,
3: in that discussion, so biologists, like distinguish between sex determination versus sexual differentiation? Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering, does that happen in the biology textbooks, or is it
4: instead, so. you know, you get an X or a Y, and then you're on this inevitable path towards? I think it's it's more the latter, and yeah. at the high school level. And you'll, you'll see the two terms used. So definitely like within textbooks, differentiation will be discussed differently from determination, maybe even under different sections. But then to the extent that that like message is picked up upon and distinguished and discussed, I don't, I don't know of any studies that I've looked at, but my guess is probably not. Yeah. Yeah, so it's an inexorable path. And it's defined fundamentally by the chromosomes, yeah.
0: Okay, sorry, it's it's one o'clock, so I need to close and um, thank Brian for a really interesting talk. Um, We have a few minutes. If you have questions remaining, you can ask them directly. Um, But I want to give everyone the opportunity to leave if you have another appointment. So, again, thank you and we will be here in person next week.